Well, I was asked last night um, by my son, why is it that preaching has to be done like this? I said, well, it doesn't have to be done that way. Uh, Dad does it that way. Um, I said, why do you ask? How, how do you know that preaching is done like that? And he said, well, I can hear you in my class. <laughs> so we'll try to uh, uh, duly note it, Owen. Thank you. We'll see what becomes of us. This morning, I just want to take a few moments with you um, to be helpful. And maybe being helpful by being specific. As we look at Romans 10 for a few minutes this morning, I was thinking, what's helpful about our life in Christ and, and being able to really ground our hearts? I, I, I hope that your hope, I hope that your hope this morning is built robustly on the realities of what Christ, God in Christ has done. I, I hope that, that that was this morning, your, your feet hit the floor and you thought, there is my foundation. I'm stepping off this bed and onto this floor and here it is. It's as rock solid as this floor is. Okay, now spiritual analogy to my feet touching this floor. As rock solid as this floor is, is what God in Christ has done for me. Not, if I can be helpful and specific, not merely the feeling of the benefits of what God and Christ has done for me. Because the feelings can come and go. The floor at your bed, it's always there, hopefully, if you live somewhere even halfway reasonable. It's still going to be there each day, unless you're in an apartment situation where you're calling your landlord and you have no floor underneath you and you're asking him, please, just come and put a floor in. Hopefully, it's better than that. For the sake of argument, I'm going to assume it is. Back to my point, the floor is always there. So, too, is what God in Christ has performed. It's always there. How you feel about the floor, the texture on your feet, its squeaky parts, which are all the parts of my house. Your feeling about the floor changes. I like this spot. I don't like this spot. I can't stand walking through this door because I hear... And it's like, ugh, I can't stand that. Okay, right, your feelings come and go. Analogy. So too does by circumstance and providence your emotional responses to the gospel. Your feeling of being locked in and your feelings of kind of being locked out. The, the emotions that are part and parcel of who we are as persons cause us to feel particular feelings 
about what God in Christ has performed. The burden there is we begin to conflate the two, blend them together. So that if I don't feel the same, those realities have somehow changed. And then what takes place, I think we all have experienced an emotional, spiritual downward spiral. A withdrawal, an inadequacy. In other words, a reality of who you really are sets in. And then, then there, there's a flight response. I either fly away or I fly onto him. What I think is helpful is if we can separate or parse what God in Christ has done and then my acceptance or affirmation or experience of those benefits. If we could parse them out, that is what I hope to do this morning. If I were to ask you, in other words, this morning, I were to ask you, on this expectant Lord's Day, an easy, like, here is the slow-pitch softball. And I'm pitching it right down the middle. Perfect arc. I mean, it's, it's so easy, it's going to be ridiculous. That is, I would ask you on this expectant Lord's Day, what is the gospel? What, you know, what, what would you say? What would we all begin to popcorn say? What would we say is the gospel? Play with me for a minute. I hope I'm helpful. Typically, we define the gospel in terms of benefits we receive from the gospel. Do you see that? So, so now, now we're already beginning to blend them. That's unhelpful, ultimately. We have to distinguish them. Of benefits received from gospel achieved. So let me, let me help you again. We define, typically we define the gospel in terms of benefits we receive from the gospel. We may describe the gospel in terms of justification. Maybe you've heard that term before. I know if you've been at Redeemer, you've heard it a lot. And we'll continue to hear it again and again. Justification. May we, what is the gospel, Adam? Well, the gospel is, and I begin to describe it, maybe in terms of justification. But what is justification? A benefit I receive from the gospel. Now my son Owen is hearing me. I need to tone it down. That is, I was, I tell my narrative in the gospel. I was lost and, and needed a savior. And, and, and I am unrighteous in terms of justification. I'm unrighteous and I'm in need of righteousness. And then the gospel is that I can have the righteousness of Christ and be forgiven. Okay, great. Great. But you see, I just deter, define the gospel in terms of the benefit I receive from the gospel. Justification. Forgiveness of sins. Maybe we would define it in terms of this, and you're saying, what's wrong with that? I I don't get the distinction. Great, then then, 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 then I'm doing it rightly. Maybe we define the gospel in terms of sanctification. 
uh, a further growth in godliness. I have a, I have a relationship with Jesus that, that then my, my unrighteous habits and my sinful uh, proclivities and, and the way that I'm living my life is being gradually cleaned up. And, and I'm growing here as God who is holy and I'm growing in personal holiness. And, and, and by His power and by His grace, I'm, I'm growing. And we say, great, great, agreed. But I was asking, what is the gospel? Not the benefit of, so that we could parse those out and have a greater appreciation for both. Not by mixing. Consider, if I could, just for a moment, this is a very helpful discussion about the gospel. Justification, sanctification, maybe you've heard. Adoption, maybe somebody would define it in terms of their adoption into the family of God. Great. Another benefit of the gospel. And while these are wonderful benefits, they are just that. Benefits bestowed from the gospel. But they are not in and of themselves the gospel. Perhaps someone other than you would describe the gospel in this way. What is the gospel? The gospel is making Jesus Lord and Savior of your life. Maybe some of us have heard that. And you're like, yeah, like everybody. Right, exactly, right, right. But you're beginning to ask yourself, is that the gospel? And you're saying, is he going to spring on us some sort of super liberal crazy gospel? (laughs) Because all these categories seem like the gospel to me. Is the gospel making Jesus the Lord and Savior of your life? But think about that for a moment. And you are, you're thinking keenly because it seems like he's basically taking the gospel and rewriting it this morning. I'm not, I'm not. I won't. But the gospel, I'll give you a little hint to this one. The gospel is not. You say, what is the gospel? What is its basic terminology of the gospel? Have you heard it's called the good news? Okay, great. Let's all breathe easy because it is. It's good news. I'm not trying to rewrite it. It's good news. But do you see how the good news announcement isn't all that good if the good news is I need to make Jesus something. But the good news is, guess what? Jesus has made me something. So so I call you to the gospel. Make Jesus. And you say, I can't make him anything. He is something. The good news is, so am I. I'm something. And I could be something better. By Him making me into something. That is good news. Do you see the distinction? 
If I just tell all of you to begin making Jesus something, you're all in trouble. Because you can't make him into anything he is. The good news is that I can encourage all of you. He can make you something. Consider maybe another one. Um, What is the gospel? We're trying to mine out what is it so that we can grasp it. What it is, here it is. Boom, 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 boom. Now that we know what it is, we can now apply it properly and appreciate them both, what it is and where I'm found in it. Not making them the same thing. Another one, so from making Jesus Lord and Savior this morning on this resurrection morning, make Jesus the Lord is not the gospel. Perhaps we have been encouraged by someone along the way, or we ourselves have thought for long, many moons, we have considered that it is this, herein is the gospel, having a personal relationship with Jesus. Have you thought for a moment, and we'll we'll get there through the text of Romans 10, But have you thought about how when you go to share your faith and you're thinking, I want to encourage someone in Christ. You know, I'm I'm fired up. I'm ready for personal evangelism. And you're shaking in your boots. And you want to execute. And you're thinking, I'm going to tell them they can have a personal relationship with Jesus. And then you're saying that guess what? I've got good news. I've got good news for you. I've got the gospel for you. You can have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Have you thought for a moment? I know you have because you've been nervous about saying it to someone. You've thought for a moment, haven't you? This might not be that great a news to them. Therein, I'm nervous about sharing it because they're like, maybe that's good news for you. But it's not good news for me. Check my life out. It works. And you're like, oh, I thought they were in need. I thought that they were going to celebrate that personal relationship. Maybe and maybe not, right? It depends. There's many people who have a very good life setting, situation, without a personal relationship. And they look at you, and when you offer it, they say, okay, good. That's good news to you. But I got good news going on. I'm all right. But we've been looking at it from page after page after page of the text of Scripture. All the way back, go with me in your mind, not in your text of Scripture, but go with me in your Rolodex mind, all the way back in the text of Scripture to Genesis 3, and you find out, wait a minute, by virtue of creation, being created by God, guess how many people in this world have a personal relationship with Jesus? How many? Everyone. Everyone does. No, not me. Yes, you. I haven't said anything. I don't go to church. It doesn't matter. You've been created by God. You are accountable to Him. You have. And if I could urge you, that's why I want to mine out with you what then is the gospel, that we would apprehend it rightly. We would know what it is and we would apply it to our account by faith. 
Because you do this morning have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. The question for you is, for me, all of us, for every man and woman out there, the question is, of what type? Do I have a good one or a bad one? The Apostles' Creed that we confess together is that Jesus did suffer under Pontius Pilate. He uh, has died. He was buried. He did rise on the third day according to the Scriptures. From, uh, he did ascend. And then the Creed goes on to say, from whence he will come to judge the living and the dead. So how many people will be judged by Jesus? How many people? Everybody. So does everybody have a relationship somehow to him? Yes, they do. So the question is, in that judgment, do I have a good one or a bad one? So it isn't the same. The gospel is not you can have a personal relationship with Jesus. You have one. So again, I would say to you, if I were to ask on this expectant Lord's Day, and nobody wants to answer now because everybody's like, I'm not sure where he's even going. I couldn't stand it when people did that to me, so I won't do it to you. They already know. They have their notes all organized. You know what the answer is. Why ask? You're just setting us up to be embarrassed. But again, if I was to ask, theoretically, let's pretend. If I was to ask, what is the gospel? I think at this point we would agree. It is a good news announcement of what God in Christ has performed. Now the question that naturally follows the good news announcement, in order for it to be good news, we need to know what contained in the announcement. What is the announcement? What are those good things in the announcement uh, if you can, open your text of Scripture. I was just going to read it for you, but I'm going to take an extra second here and just uh, have you look at it. 1 Corinthians 15. Um, what are the contents of the good announcement? And here we'll kind of begin to conclude what the gospel is. That, that, that foundation that we put our feet on the floor every morning getting out of our bed. What is my hope? My hope is bound up with the good news announcement of what God and Christ has performed. That is, again, do you notice who's not at the center of the announcement? If I were to say this sentence to you again, the gospel is a good news announcement of what God in Christ has performed. Who is not in the sentence? Us. It's about what God in Christ has done. That's the goodness of the news announcement. What are the things that God has done in Christ that makes this news announcement good news? Well, if you're there in 1 Corinthians 15, what is my hope? It is bound up with God in Christ. Verse, five, verse 1 of chapter 15. I just want to note for you if, you, if you wanted to just meditate on what is your hope or what ought be your hope, verse 1 begins, Now I would remind you, brothers, here's Paul speaking to the church at Corinth. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel 
I preach to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. By me? No, uh, in the gospel. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, you didn't really grasp, you didn't really put your faith in Christ alone. But if so, here is yet again the gospel. Verse 3. Do you notice there in verse 3, and I know I'm kind of preaching a little bit weird this morning informally. I hope it's helpful. Verse 3, do you see the tier where Paul places this content for you? What tier? Is it like, in the end, after all this other stuff, don't forget this. Notice what he says in verse 3, I delivered to you as of first importance. Here's the floor, there's the carpet, there's your feet coming out of the bed and you're about to put your feet down on the first importance. The floor better be there. Or I'm going all the way down to the first floor. Hopefully there's a floor down there. Or I'm going to land on the slab in the basement. There's probably one down there. What is of first importance for you this very day? What I also myself received, Paul says, verse 3. Here's the first importance for every one of us, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. In other words, just as promised in the Old Testament covenant. The gospel, he continues, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And then he goes on to give a proof of his, uh, of his resurrection by saying he appeared to Cephas and then he appeared again in verse 7. He appeared in verse 8. He appeared. What is the gospel? A good news announcement of what God in Christ has performed. What has God in Christ performed? Paul says that he died for our sins according to the scriptures. That is the beginning point of the gospel. Secondly, contained therein, he was buried. Thirdly, really it's onely. I know that's not a word, I just made that up. But the idea that it is a harmonious work I don't mean to dissect it out, piece A, piece B. It's a harmonious work, but Paul is laying it out. First importance for you every day is that Christ died for your sin, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day. This is the good news. Let me ask you, can that change? That he died for your sin. No. That's the good news. That he was buried. Can that change? No. That he was raised. Can that change? No. If we confuse what that is with how we feel, can it change? Yes. 
What is the gospel? Let me give you my full answer at this point, if I could, and then we'll look at Romans 10 together at how we then, having known it, appropriate it to our account, how do we share therein? Not confusing the two, but recognizing I'm sharing in what has occurred, not blending those two things the same. What is the gospel I offer to you on this resurrection morning? It is a good news announcement of what God in Christ has done. I further my definition by suggesting to you, never will it be repeated. Neither is it, and this is critical, neither is it to be performed. But it is to be believed by grace through faith. Immediately when someone begins telling you the gospel by compelling you to do something, you recognize we're off the track somewhere because the gospel is not to be confused with what I do, but to be wholly bound up into what God and Christ has done. Now, sermon part two. If you would please turn to Romans 10. I would like to further then the announcement into the appropriating matter. How do we, how do we share there in it? If Adam, if Paul has rightfully said to us under inspiration and inerrancy that the gospel is what God and Christ has done by dying for our sins, buried for our sins, removing its corruption and its power, raised the third day. If this is the gospel, the good news, how do I come to share therein? I want that good news to my account, knowing it's good, knowing it's His news, knowing it's His work and His accomplishment. I want to look and share therein. I want to be covered in it. Great. Now that we know what it is, and not confusing with our covering in it, with it itself, it remains, and it cannot be performed. It cannot be repeated. It is to be received, believed in. How do we do that then? A few moments here, let's take a look at applying it to our account, how we share in, as Pastor Dan has read for you, Romans 10. I want to look at the, uh, let's take step one of Romans 10 that was read for you. We'll begin in verse 5 for, uh, for our analysis of 5 down through 9. And we'll really center on 9 at the point that you could probably see where we're going. But hopefully we can be a bit helpful there. Beginning with verse 5, step one of this passage. We need to step back. If we were to look at verse 9, we need to step back and just understand the entire conversation that Paul is having here. If we could kind of jump into the conversation at verse 5, the question on your mind is, or the question here in Romans regarding the gospel of what God in Christ has done, is this question of righteousness. That's the lingering question. That's on the mind. Righteousness. 
That's, so now you know. You just walk into the conversation, somebody's on the phone, somebody else is sitting there, there's a discussion taking place, and you are very unsure of the parameters of the discussion. Now you're not. You've walked into the biblical text, and you recognize the basic conversation we're about to listen into, we're about to uh, uh, participate in, is a conversation regarding righteousness. What about righteousness? The need for righteousness. This is the conversation. We just opened the door, we walked in the room, and that's the discussion that all of our friends are having. Righteousness. And the question is, the need for righteousness, everybody acknowledges it. That's the discussion. Okay, then, where do we go for righteousness? How do we appropriate righteousness? How do we share in righteousness? This is the question. Beginning with Romans 5. Okay, so let's take a look at Romans 5. There are two responses, or excuse me, Romans 10 there, beginning with verse 5. There are two responses that will come out of the discussion here in chapter 10. They are, I would label them this, there is a doing response and there is a believing response. Those responses are, are well and alive and in this room today. A doing response to the category of righteousness. I need it. I know that. My conscience bears witness to me. I need it. There's no one in here, no matter where you're at in this discussion, there's no one in here who would raise their hand. I'm confident. And if you did raise your hand, I would call you a liar. That you don't feel the need for righteousness. It's innate within the human fabric. There's a question lingering over your mind of righteousness. And this then gives way to two responses in the discussion. And we'll see it right here in Romans 10. A doing response, I'm going to do what it takes to get it. And then there is yet another response, a believing and resting and receiving it. And oftentimes as believers, we fluctuate between the two. A doing or a resting. We call these two opposites law and gospel. Let's take a look. I'm sorry, I want to begin in verse 3 to see the very first response of the doers. Let's see. First notice the doing response and the need for righteousness. How do we respond? Look in verse 3 real quickly where it begins. The first response to the need for righteousness that we see all the time is in verse 3. 4. Paul says, being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God. So, so right there, already you see where righteousness is sourced. Where is it sourced? In God. It is conferred by God. For being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God, they seek to establish their own. What's going on there? They did not submit to God's righteousness. The doing response, I have labeled number one out of this text, the doing response to the need for righteousness. You're, you're agreeing with me, I can tell. We all have this question. The need for righteousness. There's two responses, a doing and a believing. Doing response number one, according to verse three, is what? Self-seeking. We see it all the time. You have this question in your mind, I need to be right with God, or a sense that there is a higher being higher than me, and there is something about me that is undone before Him. I, I, I know it's true of you. It's true of me. I know it. I know it. 
So then you will set out on a pathway or a journey to be found right before him. Various channels, various ways, various mystical theologies, various ideas and philosophers and teachers. But what is the root of it? Self-seeking. You want to arrive at the answer through the methods that you can control. Ask all the questions and get all the answers. Control everything that's taking place. A self-quest righteousness. There's an event this summer that celebrates this. I saw it online. There, in, there is coming an eight-city tour entitled, quote, The Life You Want. Awesome. I hate my life. Tell me how to have the life I want. I will. In fact, quote, this promises to see Oprah like you've never seen, heard, or experienced her. Ooh, don't tell me you haven't gone crazy at the big Oprah giveaways. She gave away a TV? A car, 21 of them. Give me the life I want. The promotion for the eight city tour continues this way. Be led on a transformative journey with breathtaking moments by some of the world's greatest life-changing minds. Ultimately, to achieve and arrive at the life you want, I seek to create spaces of empathy for people whereby they can be transformed. Let me just give you a small picture into the inability of that eight-city tour and every other self-help book that's out there. Let me just point you to the obvious nature whereby they cannot transform your life. They cannot. It's right here in Romans 10, how you know that cannot occur. Look at Paul's response to self-seeking righteousness in verse 5. Here's the response. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law. That is a covenant of works. The person who does the commandments shall live by them. Who here thinks that smacks of good news? We would be sorely mistaken. Paul's response, in other words, is great. You're setting out to be transformed by renewing your mind, a bunch of other human beings that have just maybe a shred more insight into popular wisdom than you. Great. If that's going to be your source of righteousness, then if you can perform it, you will live. How good? On approximates? No, perfection. That's the theological answer from the text of Scripture. I'm going to seek through God's commands to live them perfectly and do them absolutely, forever, in my own strength. And Paul says, great, if you can do that perfectly and perpetually for whoever lives by it, whoever performs them can live by them. How many of us in here hear good news in that? No one. There is not one child of Adam who can live the law perfectly in their own strength apart from faith on a doer's mentality. 
but I'm being transformed by, 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 you know, Oprah like you've never experienced her before. Great. Those who seek to live by them must complete them perfectly, perpetually, forever in the commandments of God. Self-seeking, self-promotion, be yourself, love yourself, experience yourself, look within yourself. <laughs> oh, folks, look away from yourself. Look unto Jesus. Look unto what He has achieved. Self-seeking. Mode of operation number one. And the quest for a doer's mentality of righteousness. Second one out of the text. Notice the second doer's response is found in verses 6 and 7. Look with me quickly in verses 6 and 7 out of the text of chapter 10. Paul continues, so the person who does the commandments shall live by them, verse 6. But the righteousness based on faith says, and now he says a a, a negative. So we're just going to kind of take it as the, the righteousness of faith is avoiding this. So it kind of shows by way of negation Here, it's showing us what, again, a self-doing mentality does say. Quotation here from Deuteronomy 30. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend? So so that is the one apart from faith. This is what he says. He says, who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. Who will do this? In other words, what would we label this doing? Willful ignorance. Willful ignorance. The heart of faith does not say that. So we'll get to what the heart of faith does say in verse 8. It doesn't say what those outside of faith do say regarding God's word. A willful ignorance. In other words, you look at the two ways in which it speaks about God's Word. It looks upon the weightiness of, uh, of the Word. It looks upon the community. And it says this, it is way too high. That is the Word of heaven there, verse 7. It is, who will say, who can ascend into heaven and know the things of God? Nobody, in other words, it's too lofty to really know. I, I, it's, it's just... Then look at the other willful, ignorant response. What is it? It's just way too low. It's too mysterious. We'll never really be able to plummet its depths. It's too far and mysterious. It's unknown to us, really. So who can really make dogmatic statements about anything? Who can really determine what is the gospel and what isn't the gospel? What is the gospel to you? What is it to me? What do you feel? I'm not sure. How do you feel? Let's feel together. Nobody can really know. Nobody's sure. Nobody can be certain because, again, these things are too high or way they're way down in the depths below. Either way, our response is the same. We just don't know. A willful ignorance. That's another self-seeking righteousness. Perhaps we start in category one. We seek to establish our own righteousness. Boom, 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 boom. I'm doing it. I'm executing. I'm getting it. And then I get burned out. And then I turn to defense mechanism number two, a willful ignorance. I guess we'll never really know. I thought your view yesterday was you're going to achieve and ascend to the heavens. No, now I've said who could ascend to the heavens. I've abandoned my strategies. I realize that I can't achieve it. So now I just willfully ignore it. I mean, it's just too much for us to grasp, isn't it? 
This is a doer's righteousness. Everyone has the category of the need for righteousness, and here is a response. I either set out to do it, or I claim willful ignorance. I'll never grasp it. And then, guess what? If I can't grasp it, neither can you. Who are you to say to me? There's a commitment to a willful ignorance. The word is always beyond us. But this doesn't alleviate the need for righteousness. No matter how badly we want to get rid of it, it never will eliminate it. The need for righteousness will always plague the conscience. We will either seek to achieve it, or we will, as Paul says, we will embrace it by believing it. So, our last portion in our time together is this morning what Paul charges us that righteousness does not come by seeking after ourselves in it, but by believing it. Look at verse 8 and 9. But what does it say then? If it doesn't have a willful ignorance toward it and it does not seek to establish its own righteousness, what does a heart of faith say? Regarding the need for righteousness, this is what it says, verse 8. The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. So what does it mean? What does the believing response say? There are two things right here in the text we can see about the believing response to the need for righteousness. Again, everybody in here knows the category of righteousness and the need for it. Everybody. What is the believing response towards the need for righteousness? It is, number one, a believing response of affirmation. It affirms what's being preached. Right now you're hearing the word preached near to you. What does a faith response say to it? Look in the text. What does the response say to the word? It says, it is near me. It is in my mouth and in my heart that is the word of faith that I'm hearing proclaimed. It isn't a willful ignorance. I don't know it. It's too far. It's too hard. He's standing up there for so long. And now he's too loud. Heart of faith affirms what's being spoken, that it is accessible and understandable. That's the heart's response. What's being said to me about righteousness and the category of sinfulness and the need for righteousness is accessible. I'm hearing it, maybe not perfectly, but I'm hearing it. And not only am I hearing it, that it's accessible, I'm understanding it. Because faith is coming through the preaching of the Word. A heart of faith is hearing it, affirming it, not willfully neglecting it, or now saying, I heard of Christ, but I don't care, I'm going to seek to establish my own. 
the heart of faith says, I hear it and it's accessible and I want to be hidden in His righteousness alone. That's what the heart of faith says. The first response to the heart of faith to hearing the preached word is, it is accessible. I'm affirming what I'm hearing. The second response as Christ is being proclaimed to me as the sum of all righteousness The second response from the text is acceptance of the affirmation. So I affirm that what Adam is saying right now, I affirm. It is accessible. I've heard of my unrighteousness. In fact, I know of it. I've heard of Christ who then died and was buried and did raise and did appear. This is the first importance issue for my life. I know that the gospel is not me but him. I know that. I affirm. Affirm that. I affirm it. And now, as I affirm it, I accept it. Do you see how that's not the same thing? What he did and you receiving it are not the same. What he has done is only what he can do. And by accepting it, I'm not asked to then go do it. But trust in it. Rest in it. Find my hope in it. So I affirm it, and then I accept it. And that is clearly laid out in verse 9. In verse 8, you agree, you affirm. It's accessible and understandable. Why? Verse 9, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God, and here is the crux of the matter, raised him from the dead, you will be saved. One word of caution here is in verse 9. We don't want to parse that out to where there is a stage process to your redemption, that you first say something in your mouth, then you believe in your heart. We don't, it, it is all one statement that Paul is saying here, that you are confessing what God in Christ has achieved. And you're embracing it wholly. Do you notice that you're not making him Lord in the text? He is the Lord. You're affirming that. Who are we to make him the Lord? is the Lord who has been raised. We affirm it and by faith we accept it and are saved. I don't need to ask you, do you want a personal relationship with Jesus? I want to convince you you have one. I would ask you, What kind of relationship do you have with him? I won't follow up by saying, have you made him the Lord of your life? I'll follow up by asking, have you confessed him to be the Lord that he is over your life? Have you 
put your faith in him. And gathered on this Lord's day because he has been raised and you are saved. Christ, we do pray in your name and give you glory. We thank you for the truth of what the gospel is, that it is outside of us, that it is achieved by God through you for us and for your glory. And we, as nothing but lowly servants, affirm it and accept it and share in your benefits of righteousness, salvation, deliverance, growing in holiness and sanctification are promised to be glorified in glorification. And we await you to return to judge the quick and the dead, as the Apostles' Creed does say. Because you will appear once again, but for your people who have received you, banked on you, you will not appear to deal with sin, for you have already dealt with that. But you will appear to save us. That we might forever be with you because of you, not us. We praise you for the good news announcement of what God, through you, has accomplished. In your name we pray, amen. Will you stand with us as we confess Jesus Christ is Lord? alone.